Hello, and welcome to our online worship service. I'm Nathan Boyette, one of the pastors here. We're going to be continuing our sermon series in the book of Acts. Today, we're going to be looking at Acts 9, 19 to 31. This passage uh, immediately follows Saul's miraculous conversion on the road to Damascus, where the Lord reveals himself to him and calls him out of darkness into light as a beloved child of God. Let's read today in Acts 19, the second half of the verse. For some days, he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues, saying, he is the son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has not he come here for this purpose to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him, but his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him, and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed among the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up, and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied." Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you that you have given it to us to encourage us, to comfort us, to challenge us. We pray, Lord, that you would speak to us through it now. Holy Spirit, please be present with us in our own homes as we listen to this message. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Our world was beautifully created by our good God and creator, and this is described in Genesis 1 and 2. When God had finished the creation, he spoke about how it was very good. But in Genesis 3, humanity rebelled against God and sin entered the world. This sin entering the world corrupted God's good creation. It caused everything to be twisted and broken. And we all now sinfully rebel against God every day as we reject him and reject his way of living. But God did not leave his broken, sinful creation alone. He did not leave us alone. He sent Jesus to die and be resurrected. This gospel of salvation and redemption brought through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection is the good news. And when humanity hears this good news, people respond in either joyful acceptance or in rejection. And we see in our passage today that Saul has joyfully accepted this good news. But even as he's joyfully accepted it, he begins to proclaim it to the world and other people reject it and reject him. It was true in Saul's day and it's true in our day. In India, the Dalit caste is still viewed as untouchables, outcasts, even viewed as subhuman. I recently heard the testimony of a Christian Dalit, Kumar Swami. Kumar's brother took him to hear a Christian leader who would uh, speak in the streets to different people. And when Kumar heard the Christian speaker speak, he heard for the first time that he was of infinite value, created in God's image. 
Kumar loved that message, and he wanted to know more, so he kept talking with his brother about it, and his brother explained the Christian message of the gospel, of salvation in Jesus Christ, and Kumar believed in Jesus, and he said in his own words that it completely transformed his life. He knew he had value, worth, and dignity, and Kumar devoted the rest of his life, and he's still doing this, to helping his fellow Dalits know their value and worth shown forth in the gospel. Kumar believed, and his life was completely transformed. In the whole chapter of Acts 9, we see the same thing. Saul, on the road to Damascus, has a vision of the risen Lord Jesus Christ, who shares the gospel with Saul, and Saul believes, and he's transformed. We see in Acts 9.15, when the Lord speaks to Ananias, he says, Go, for Saul is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. When we believe in the gospel, we are saved for a purpose. Author Jerry Bridges talks about this when he says, Jesus did not die just to save us from the penalty of sin, nor even just to make us holy in our standing before God. Jesus died to purify for himself a people eager to obey him, a people eager to be transformed into his likeness. I agree completely with Jerry Bridges, but I would just add that Jesus saves us to be his instruments, to be his chosen people, his children that are ambassadors in this world on his behalf. The whole New Testament is clear about this. Peter, writing in 1 Peter 2, says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness in his marvelous light. God chose us as a people who will then proclaim his wonderful message to the world. Paul in Ephesians 1 writes something very similar. He writes in Ephesians 1, beginning in verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined, he chose us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ to the praise of his glorious grace. In Colossians, Paul says this, a very similar thing. He calls Christians to put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. These are just a couple of passages that show what the big idea of our passage is, that God chooses people for a purpose. And so our big idea today is that our sovereign God has graciously chosen us so we should live transformed lives. Our sovereign God has graciously chosen us so we should live transformed lives. And we see this transformed life in our passage through three points, how they live differently, they live in forgiveness, and they live obediently. First, live differently. In our passage today, we see that one way Saul is transformed after experiencing gospel salvation is that he lives completely differently. He's transformed utterly. In verse 20, we see that Saul immediately begins to proclaim Jesus in the synagogues and in the marketplaces. Just days after his conversion, he's telling everybody that Jesus is the Son of God. This is a radical course correction, going from this direction to completely the opposite. In verse 21, we see how this transformation is so stark that it causes people to be shocked. In, in complete consternation, they say, is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? 
the man who mere days and weeks before was dragging men and women off to prison, is now a Christian, boldly proclaiming Jesus as the Son of God and the Savior of the world in the synagogues, having arguments with people in the synagogues about the truthfulness of Christ's claims and the gospel. The man who had stood by as Stephen was murdered is now proclaiming the life-giving salvation of Jesus Christ. We see in verse 22 that Saul increases all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. We're not exactly sure on the timeline of all this because Luke is very brief in his description. In Galatians, where Paul reflects on his life story, he says that he left Damascus for a three-year period in Arabia before going to Jerusalem. So most likely, Paul preached Jesus multiple times in Damascus throughout those years with a longer period elsewhere growing and learning about Christianity and Christ's claims. In verse 28, we see that when he goes down to Jerusalem, he is boldly preaching the name of the Lord in Jerusalem as well. Paul proclaimed the gospel in Damascus and Jerusalem. Jerusalem was his home turf, a city he had lived in for many years. He was well known there. He was a leading Pharisee scholar. He was a student of the famed rabbi Gamaliel. People knew who Saul was, but he had experienced the gospel and he was transformed, and he knew that he had to live differently. Everyone who becomes a Christian is a new creation. We are taken from death to life, and when we, that happens, we're going to live differently. We're going to live differently than the world and culture that surrounds us. We're going to live differently than our past. Before we were Christians, we were slaves of sin, without choice, literally dead in our sin, but God made us alive in Christ. And that's going to lead to transformation. That's going to lead to a different life. Saul, when he later became Paul, would write about this in the book to the Philippians. In Philippians 3, he reflects on his past, his history, and he says, I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Paul says that all of his previous life all of the credentials, the great respect, everything that he had is nothing because now he has Christ and now he's going to live completely differently for the sake of the gospel and the salvation that he's been given. When the gospel impacts our lives and we trust in Jesus for our salvation, then we will be completely transformed and we begin to live differently than the surrounding world. I love the movie Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, uh, both versions, the older one and the newer one with Johnny Depp. And in the newer one, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, the kids are walking through the factory with Willy Wonka. And Charlie asks Wonka, do you remember the first time that you ate candy? And Wonka says, no, I don't remember. But then he has a flashback and remembers to when he was a little kid. If you're unfamiliar with the story, Wonka had a very strict disciplinarian father who was a dentist. And his father wanted Wonka to have perfect, clean, good teeth. So he had this elaborate brace, braces system that would straighten his out, teeth out perfectly and never allowed Wonka to have chocolate or candy. 
Wonka got some chocolate and candy on Halloween, brought it home, but his father threw it in the fire. And in the memory, Wonka remembers finding one small piece of chocolate in the fireplace, still wrapped in foil. And he unwraps it and eats it. And then Wonka's life is completely transformed and changed. The incredible taste of this chocolate just sets him on the path and trajectory of becoming the world-famous, preeminent chocolatier who is just amazing at his job. Wonka tasted chocolate for the first time, and his life was never the same afterwards. Just like Wonka was completely transformed, we as Christians have tasted and experienced God's salvation, and we should never be the same after that. We should forever be different. We should forever live differently because of what we have experienced and this is what Paul says in the book of Romans, where in Romans 6, 13, he says, do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members, your body to God as instruments for righteousness. Paul says, don't continue to go to sin because you are no longer slaves to sin. You are children of God. Give yourself to God and use your body your thought, your mind, your actions for righteousness, for holiness, for good, live differently. In Romans 12, Paul says this again. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Paul calls us as Christians to live completely differently than the world and our previous life. We have been saved and redeemed from sin, and we should no longer continue to live enslaved to sin and unrighteousness, but rather we should live as God's chosen beloved ones, instruments in his hand that he uses to bring goodness and holiness into the world. As modern Americans, we often think that freedom is the ability to do whatever we want. But that's wrong. As Christians, freedom is not the ability to do whatever we want. Rather, freedom is the ability to live as God intended us to live, to live as God created us to live. And in Jesus Christ, we are finally free from sin to live as God created us. This means we will live differently than our previous lives and differently than the surrounding world and culture. Of course, we will have a passion and a zeal for fellowship with other Christians. We will have a passion and a zeal for life-on-life -life discipleship, for studying God's word, for praying. But these are just basic, simple things. And if we only focus on them, it can lead us down the path of legalism, where we focus on the outward behavior and not the holistic transformation that God wants to happen in our hearts, our lives, our thoughts, and action. Jesus has saved us for complete and utter transformation. He wants to restore us to all that God intended humans to be. He wants to transform the use of our time, how we interact with entertainment, video games, sports, hobbies. He wants to transform how we interact with our work, how we find value and significance in it, how we use it for his glory and work unto the Lord. He wants to transform how we interact with the care of our bodies whether we smoke or not, if we overconsume alcohol, how we interact with food and what we put in our bodies. Jesus wants to transform how we interact with the environment, the care of God's creation. He wants to transform the ethical treatment of animals. 
He wants to transform the companies we buy products from. Are they treating their factory workers well? He wants to transform our interactions with our finances. Everything we have is from the Lord. And so we joyfully use all of our resources by giving tithes and offerings to the church, generously giving to other people who are in need. He wants to transform how we interact with the companies we invest in for our retirement. Are they companies that profit by selling sinful practices and behaviors and thoughts to people? Are they companies that bring flourishing and life into the world? God wants to transform how we live in our relationships, our marriages, the way we parent, how we are committed to relationships even when they are difficult. Jesus and the gospel is to be woven throughout each and every moment of our day and every facet of our lives. And this should cause us to live life completely differently than the world around us and completely differently than how we lived before we became Christians. This is difficult. We need to daily invite the Holy Spirit into our lives to empower us and help us to live in this transformed manner. We can't do it if we are left to our own devices, but we can do it in Jesus Christ. A second way we see gospel transformation in the lives of Christians in our passage is through living in forgiveness. We see people that Christians are called to be people who seek forgiveness and give forgiveness. This theme is present throughout the whole narrative arc of Acts 6 to 9, as we see Stephen martyred, Saul pursuing Christians to death, his conversion on the road to Damascus, and an Ananias sent to Saul with grace and forgiveness. And we see it in our specific passage as well in verse 19, where immediately after his conversion, just days later, he's fellowshipping with Christians, learning from them, spending time with them. This man was on the way to Damascus to hunt them down and drag them back to Jerusalem in chains. But they have forgiven him. They're breaking bread with him. They're spending time with him. We see that in an unspecified period of time later, in verse 25, they're helping him escape the city as people want to kill him, as people want to kill Saul. They have forgiven him, the one who came to Damascus to persecute them. In verse 26, we see how when he goes down to Jerusalem, Saul attempts to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. Of course, this is logical. He had murdered Stephen, persecuted the Christians, and gone in great anger and zeal to Damascus. Of course, they were afraid of him. But we see Barnabas, who had some knowledge of him, took Saul and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. And we don't see it here, but in Galatians, Saul talks about how they extended to him the right hand of fellowship. They forgave him. They welcomed him into the family and fellowship of God. The gospel is the message of God's forgiveness given to humanity because of Jesus' death and resurrection. When we experience and know that gospel and know the forgiveness of God, we then both turn to others in forgiveness and we seek others' forgiveness whom we have wronged. In Matthew 18, Jesus, when he spoke, uh, Peter came to Jesus and he said, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I will forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Jesus is not saying literally you have to count up and keep a tally sheet of how many times you're forgiving somebody. He's saying it's so much greater than you think, Peter. You should forgive with 
unlimited amount of times. In Colossians 3, Paul, writing about the character of God that we as Christians are to put on, he says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Just as God has forgiven us in abundance, we also should forgive others in abundance. I'm not saying that we should forgive and not be careful of consequences. We should. If somebody is unrepentant, we need to be careful around them, but we should still extend forgiveness to them. By the gospel, we are transformed to be a people who show forth God's character. We are transformed and called to be a people who extend forgiveness to others because we have been forgiven so much. We are also to be quick to seek the forgiveness of others. If we know we have wronged somebody, we should go to them first and say, I'm sorry that I've hurt you. I have wronged you. Please forgive me. But our modern American culture is unable to forgive often. Our modern American culture is moralistic. By that, I don't mean that it follows God's moral laws. Rather, I mean that it has a code or a standard of how people should operate. And when people fail that, it judges them. Our modern American culture is moralistic but unable to forgive. And so we practice things like cancel culture, being vindictive and vengeful. We do this both as individuals and as a society. Elizabeth Bruning, who is a, a, a journalist writing for a, a whole host of publications, uh, writes a lot about forgiveness, and she has a very great article on it, and she writes, the habit we're in of waging small-scale wars via celebrity censors has made us nearly incapable of holding our allies accountable or of forgiving our enemies. If forgiveness had a face, it would be hideous to us now to the degree that beauty is a matter of socially constructed taste, we wouldn't be able to look at forgiveness without revulsion. Forgiveness means having the technical right to exact some penalty, but electing not to pursue it. She says that forgiveness means that we should be able to hold somebody accountable, but we choose not to because we want to give them mercy and grace. She says forgiveness breaks the cycle of retribution with unearned, undeserved mercy. The face of forgiveness is bruised and ugly because it bears its own injuries with grace. So doing permits the cycle of retribution to go no further. Forgiveness is a hard thing, she says, but necessary if huge numbers of strangers are going to live peacefully together. This is exactly what the Bible teaches. Forgiveness is necessary in society, in churches, in families. And we as Christians should be the best at giving forgiveness. As God's beloved children, we've been chosen to live out his character in this world. God is a God of love, mercy, forgiveness. We have sinned an incredible amount against him and against others, but we have been forgiven. How can we not extend forgiveness to others? We who have been forgiven much. As Christians, we should be people who forgive one another. Christians should have nothing to do with cancel culture, Instead, we should invite people into relationship, invite people into a dialogue where we call them to a high standard of God's character, but we extend forgiveness when they fail and they sin against us or others. And anybody who can look at our modern culture sees that we desperately need the concept of forgiveness as we continue to bite and devour one another. 
That does not mean that forgiveness is not incredibly difficult. It is. As moral creatures created by God's, in God's image, we have his moral law written on our hearts, and we are, of course, outraged by evil and sin. However, our moral outrage is often tarnished by sin. We want mercy for ourselves and justice for others. We want mercy for ourselves, justice for our enemies. Furthermore, we are not God, so we don't see with the pristine moral clarity that he does. We often see through our own lens, our own biases, our own prejudices. We as Christians are called to be a people of forgiveness. As we live in community as sinful humans, we will sin against each other. We will wrong one another intentionally and unintentionally. Let us be quick to forgive. Let us be quick to ask forgiveness. I want to stress that one area that is essential that we have forgiveness is that of the family, the home. Our marriages, our relationships as parents, as children, as siblings should be characterized by forgiveness because in the home, in the families, where we're most vulnerable with each other, where we have the strongest commitments to one another, we will sin more against one another than in normal relationships. Spouses, be quick to forgive one another. Husbands, be quick to say, I'm wrong. I'm sorry. I failed you. Can you please forgive me? Wives, be quick to extend forgiveness. Husbands, be quick to extend forgiveness. Parents, I encourage you, one of the greatest gifts you can give your children is to apologize when you have sinned against them and ask their forgiveness. Children inevitably internalize sin and say that whatever their parents did wrong is their own fault. Be quick to dispel that notion and say, no, I sinned against you as your father or as your mother. I'm sorry. Children, be quick to ask forgiveness when you've disobeyed and caused your parents stress and anxiety. Siblings often have great relationships but are quick to be at each other's throats and cause fights. Be quick to ask one another for forgiveness. The final way in our passage we see the Christian transformed life played out is by Saul's obediently following the Lord's will. He follows the Lord's will obediently even into suffering. In Acts 9, the Lord had revealed to both Saul and Ananias that Saul would be a chosen instrument to carry Jesus' name to the Gentiles, and that Saul would suffer for the sake of Jesus' name. In our passage, just days after that experience on the road to Damascus, it begins to happen. Saul begins to proclaim the name of Jesus far and wide, and he begins to suffer for the sake of Jesus' name. We see that in both Damascus and Jerusalem, as Saul is boldly proclaiming the gospel, people want to threaten his life and potentially kill him. But Saul, despite that, continues to obey the Lord. And the rest of Saul's journey as he goes and proclaims the gospel far and wide in the Mediterranean world will be characterized by this, him suffering persecution, imprisonment, beatings, but despite that, he obeys the Lord's will. How could Saul not do that? Of course, he was saved from being the worst of sinners, saved from being a persecutor of the very Lord and God who created him. How could he not respond in delighted obedience of that God who extended him grace and mercy? Saul, on the road to Damascus, had seen the mighty, awesome Lord in all his glory. This Lord, whom he had persecuted, forgave him gave him grace. And what is true of Saul is also true of us. We who have sinned again and again against our fellow humans and against our great God and Savior, we have been forgiven. We've been given grace and mercy. How can we not respond in obedience out of gratitude and delight? 
The Apostle John, writing in 1 John 5, talks about this. He says, by this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. John says the love of God, the love of God's children and obedience are so interwoven that they seem synonymous. Those who have been called out of darkness, saved from God's wrath and judgment, should gratefully live lives of obedience to God's will. And it's not burdensome, as we talked about earlier. It's freedom, freedom to be who we were always meant to be and created to be. Anybody who has children or who has been a child will understand this. There's a world of difference between delighted obedience and grudging compliance. Anybody who has been a child knows what it's like to hear a parent's instruction and just grudgingly comply with bitterness and annoyance. I am so happy when I see my sons, Noah and Daniel, delighted to obey us and joyfully wash the dishes, for example, which they've recently been doing a lot. It fills me with such joy to see them happily obeying. In the same manner, we should delightedly obey our great God and Savior out of joyful gratitude. We're called to obedience, not grudging compliance. An obedience that out of gratitude and delight takes joy in living as God always intended us to live, as creatures created in his image and living by his revealed will. Delightful obedience out of gratitude, will take us to difficult places, just as it took Saul to difficult places. God doesn't call us to an easy, comfortable life, but to a life of mission, a life of helping bring forgiveness and reconciliation to a sinful people in a sinful, broken world. This mission will be difficult, but it will be worth it, and it will be joyful at times. And isn't this following in the path of our Lord and Savior? He taught us in Mark 8, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? This transformed life that we've been talking about, it's possible because of the salvation and redemption we have in Jesus Christ. It's possible because he is now dwelling in each one of us through the Holy Spirit, the one who lived his life completely, perfectly, radically different from the surrounding world, is dwelling inside of us. The one who epitomized forgiveness is dwelling inside of us. The one who bought and earned forgiveness by his death and resurrection is living inside of us. And he, through his Holy Spirit, will strengthen us and enable us to live obediently, joyfully. Let's pray to him. Lord God, we praise you and thank you that you have earned our salvation. You died in our place, Lord Jesus. And through your Holy Spirit, you have chosen us to be your beloved children so that we might live radically transformed lives in this world. So that we might live as you intended us to live. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would strengthen us to live out our lives differently in forgiveness and obediently this week. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.